You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Good morning, Life Tree. Online or here in person, welcome. Drafting off of something Caleb mentioned there about seeds being sown, I read a blog from someone this week. Seeds don't care about motives. They reap what you sow. I meant what you mean doesn't matter as much as what you sow. So I thought it was a good clarifying comment. If you walked into the doctor's office, the question might be, what hurts? This morning, I'd like you, as we get ready to read from Psalm 42, to just take a moment and ask yourself, what hurts? What's been lost? What's causing pain? What are you running out of hope on? What hurts? Because this, whether it's the same as what the psalm is about, which is, when can I meet with God? It hurts so much to not meet with God. Or perhaps a different situation that seems equally significant to yourself. I believe there's some great direction for us from God's word about what's hurting wherever we are. So I hope you've locked in a little bit of a thoughtful answer in your own mind about what's hurting right now. Because the more clear you are in your mind about what's hurting, the more God can speak specifically to your situation. Psalm 42 is beautiful. Now, you might have not often seen a deer panting, but you've got a bit of a deer panting, like (sighs) the way my dog looks after a walk on a sunny day. But you've got this picture off the start of Psalm 42 of a deer in the desert. And the writer of the psalm says this is what it's like for them in their desperate desire to meet with God. So let's look at this for a moment. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Maybe what hurts is you're not panting. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I used to go with the multitude. I used to lead the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And then this rallying cry, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. This is my favorite verse in the psalm. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me. 
saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And there's the rallying cry again. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's the word of the Lord. Yeah. This is not like bumping into someone at the grocery store unexpectedly when we talk about meeting with God. This isn't like you're backing up with yogurt in your hands and they're backing up with bananas and you go, oh, I haven't seen you guys in days. There's the neighbor down the street. We're not talking about something that's unscripted or accidental. We're talking in a meeting with God of someone who had a rhythm and a habit. It was normal for them. Normal's been disrupted. They were used to the intent of meeting regularly. What does it mean to you to meet with God? Now, think about setting up meetings. I, for instance, every semester get connected with one business school uh, student from UVic, a mentee. We're expected to run a Google page. The person who oversees the mentorship program gives us questions and targets and topics. And every time we wrap up a meeting, for the next meeting, we have to decide when, we have to decide where, we have to decide how long, decide which intentional aims we're going to shoot for. And then we populate that document through the season between meeting one and meeting two about how we're readying, how we're reading, and how we're going to come ready to meet. And honestly, in the scope of my life, that's a low-priority meeting. I'm wondering what you run in the back end to meet with God. What's your when? What's your where? What's your why? How do you show up to get ready for the meeting? Are you a person who wanders into meetings not quite sure why you're there or what's supposed to happen and you hope someone leads the way? This is about you being in love with and leading yourself into deeper relationship with God. So maybe already there's something stirring in you of like, yeah, I don't really have plans around how to meet with God. And I know where Satan and our minds want to take us right away. Shame. That's not where we want to end up here today. We want to move as the psalmist does, who's in despair, into a place of hope. So what's the loss? Something you deeply enjoy, have loved tremendously, is very meaningful, and it's taken from you. One of my high points is trail running. And five weeks ago today... I actually missed church because on my Sunday run, my ankle rolled so bad. Exactly. (laughs) I actually went into shock from the pain. My entire foot turned purple. And today was the first day I ran the trail again, five weeks of recovery. And I can't tell you, there hasn't been a section of a moment of a day that I haven't thought about the pain. It's kept me awake. It's kept me from walking. I've had to work so hard to try to get back to, and I'm not even close to back to where I was five weeks ago. I rolled an ankle. It seemed a small encumbrance. 
until a week passed and two weeks passed and three weeks passed and still going upstairs, I'm only leading with my strong one because I can't push off a stair with my other one. Now, I'm starting to get used to the notion that as we age, we're going to let some stuff go. I have the good fortune of talking every evening to my 80-year-old parents and finding out what they're letting go of as life happens. But here's the beautiful thing. When it comes to meeting with God and matters of the soul, you can just keep on climbing. From strength to strength, as one author puts it, falling upward, as Richard Rohr writes. There's so much opportunity in our walk with God to keep on elevating. So it's one thing to feel miserable and not know why. And maybe that happens to you, like you're having a crappy day and you're not even sure what the reason is. But the author in the Psalm 42 knows exactly why. In verse 11 of the message, the way he renders it is, why are you down in the dumps, dear soul? Why are you crying the blues? And the answer is clear. I, I don't get to meet with God. That's the why. And further to that, People who don't like me, who are opposing me, enemies, they're actually taunting. Now, it's one thing where your team and another team show up on the field or the pitch or the gym, and you get trashed, you get trounced, you get defeated, and they mock you because their cheers are loud and they're jeering, and they take some certain delight in watching you lose. But this is more the situation where you're at the funeral of a loved one. And someone's standing up in the service and say, ha, yeah, you're getting what you deserve. Like, we're talking, dig the knife in and turn it. This person's being jeered at and taunted and opposed by people who are quite ecstatic that he's totally distraught and wrecked over the loss of the opportunity to meet with God. Forgotten, oppressed. Now, we're going to get some context, because I believe, from reading different authors and Bible commentaries, there's actually a specific event in the life of David that Psalm 42 is speaking to. To set it up a little bit, you'd need to go back into 2 Samuel chapter 6, where you'd know that the king before David, the first king of Israel, was Saul. And as part of his notable career, he managed in battle to lose the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. And the Philistines were beset by all sorts of challenges when the ark was with them because it was meant to be in the presence of Israel and bless them. And it was in the presence of its enemies. They ended up with tumors and they ended up with sickness and they ended up with rashes. And everyone's like, get that Israel thing out of our city. And so they sent it back to a border town and it ended up in a household. And in David's reign, he's like, why don't we have what was supposed to be central to the worship of Israel in the center of Israel. Why is it out in the border town? This forgotten tent of meeting an Ark of Covenant. And so in 2 Samuel 6, you get that wonderful story of David, and it's very much referenced in Psalm 42, leading the procession, leading the multitudes, dancing and singing. That was the day they brought back the Ark into the capital, the city of David, the Jerusalem that David had set up. Remember, that's when his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, was jeering at him for behaving so unseemingly as a king because he didn't care about being king. He cared about meeting with God. So the backdrop, the texture of this is you've got someone who's crazy about his Lord. He wants worship to be the center pinning, the, the underlying, the foundation of every part of everyone in the nation's day. And it seems that his norm 
was to leave the palace and go to the ark and almost get in that space where priests were to be and say, mighty God, I'm the king and I'm a worshiper and I'm here to be yours and I need you to lead this people. But something shifted in David's life now. And he's going, why can't, when can rather, when can I meet with God? And it's interesting to note, that's the key here. It's not a why can't I meet with God. It's when. We'll get to that. So what we're talking about here today is choosing hope, which the psalm continually repeats. Choosing hope. It's not an easy choice. When. Emptiness and loss characterize your faith journey. It doesn't mean all the time there's loss. It doesn't mean all the time there's emptiness. But you're at a season where there's loss. And if someone was to ask you how it's going, you'd like, that's the worst question to ask me because I don't want to talk openly about how it's going because it hurts. And so in the journey where he's at in this psalm, it hurts. He's lost something deep and meaningful. But he's going to choose hope. I'd like to say meeting with God is a keystone habit. It's not just a habit. If you want to like dig into what that means, not meeting with God, but keystone habit, check out a really simple, easy to listen to podcast by Andy Stanley about keystone habits. There are certain things that when we establish them in our daily or our weekly routines, they kind of shift everything significantly. If you set up a when and a where and a why and a how of meeting with God on a daily basis, this starts to have a trickle-down effect that affects all your relationships, your thinking. You start preparing and living out of those meetings with God. I remember being trapped on a boat in my 20s, eight of us, on what was supposed to be an overnight journey. The boat was kind of an oversized canoe with an outrigger for stabilization. Had a small motor where the person running the boat would wrap a cord like I used to in the 70s around my family's lawnmower, and then, and if it didn't go, you'd take the cord and you'd wrap it up again. And we were halfway through what was supposed to be our overnight journey. This is very southern Philippines. And that motor won't go no more. And the sun comes up at 4.35 in the morning on the equator. And the currents are pretty strong. And there's sharks kind of cruising around the boat. And there's eight of us. And the sun comes out. And you're on the ocean sitting about a meter off the water in this kind of large dugout with an outrigger. And the guy's constantly not knowing how to fix the boat or the motor, just wrapping the cord around and pulling again, swearing in Tagalog and trying again. And we continue to drift and the sun starts to work on us. And those of us with white skin, the non-Filipinos in the boat, there's no shade, there's no cover. My skin starts to lift off my face as the blisters form and the sun takes on. There's a sense of thirst at a level I've never understood thirst because the heat's incredible and we didn't have any provisions for the trip. 
there's a sense of this is the weirdest way to die. It's a thousand kilometers south to the nearest land in Indonesia. And who says we're actually going to drift onto land? We could keep going. I don't know where the currents are. I don't have any. We're, we're in a canoe. Complete sense of this is over. And then a fishing boat on the horizon. You're like, oh my goodness. We're waving, we're screaming, we're yelling, we're waving a piece of clothes on a paddle. And we kind of just loop through that for the day. Absolutely just in the moment, I need to drink. Oh my goodness, my life's over. (gasps) There's another boat. And we just looped desire, despair, hope, and just mostly sitting in despair. It wasn't like evenly spaced out. (laughs) That's really the cycle we see in the psalm. There's this desire for a meeting, this intense thirst, this appetite that's God-given, God-ordained. It's been met repeatedly, this appetite to meet with God, and now it's not being met. And it's a life and death issue for the psalm writer. I have to meet with God. He actually describes that tears are his food day and night. All he's consuming is his grief. You ever watch those documentaries or now today, maybe if you're on Facebook or Instagram, it's a 30 second reel from someone's iPhone sitting in a Jeep on a safari and the animals come to the water holes where the crocodiles are. And I can't imagine being the impala, the wildebeest, the gazelle, the whatever animal. And this is the only spot where the water is. And that's where all the crocodiles are. And so how do you drink, right? Like so carefully, you're like going in slow your head's down, something's moving slowly towards you, you're trying to get the water. These are very entertaining reels, right? If you're one of those sick people. (laughs) It's risky to be that thirsty, but no, that's your only option. Have you ever wanted to meet with God so much that you're willing to get in that water? I don't know, do you ever clear your schedule and just say, this day's for me and God? And I've been thinking about that this week. If someone messages you, never mind even replying to their text or their email, but their message is, I want to meet with you. What will be the deciding factors? This is a crowd participation moment. What will be the deciding factors on you not meeting with them? If I message you and you say, hey, let's meet. Why, why would we end up not meeting if I'm all ready to go? You're not available. You're too busy. Which, if it's today, I get it because you're booked. But if I say, Carolyn, any time in the next three weeks, and she's still busy, then we start to see maybe there's a priority issue that meeting with me probably doesn't factor in a whole lot. And that then trickles in probably to, I'm not interested in meeting with you. So it's availability or desire. Now, this is the beautiful part. When we look at the psalmist crying out, when can I meet with God? Is he available? Is God available? Hey, because the answer from God's angle on this is anytime, anytime you can meet with me. That's very refreshing to me. It's so exciting to know that he's always ready. He's always willing. He's always eager. And yet... Sometimes we don't meet with God. And so we've got to be asking ourselves then, well, what is it about my availability and my interest? 
where I'm not hungry. This isn't a keystone issue in my mind. You go a week, you don't meet. Are you crying tears? Are you like, huh, this has become normal. So when was this in David's life? Most would presume it's in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Do you know the story of how his son, over the matter of years, his son Absalom, sat at the gates to the city and turned the hearts of many, saying, if you have a matter that you'd like a judge for or someone to kind of weigh in on, I'm willing to listen to you. It's kind of too bad that my dad, the king, doesn't take that type of care for the people. And we know that over a matter of years, Absalom, with a rebellious heart and a clear plan, turns the heart of many in the nation so that he can get to that point where he feels as any person staging a coup has to, I think I've got what I need to blow the trumpet. And when we read 2 Samuel 15, Absalom with his forces has come into the capital city of Jerusalem and David is barefoot with his head covered with those who have remained loyal to him, they've walked out of the palace, they've crossed the Jordan River. This was a city he took as a warrior and made his capital. He's leaving it barefoot with his head covered. He looks like a defeated old man whose son has displaced him. Some people are vocally like Shimei, throwing stones and raining down curses on him. He's got people taunting him. Ha! Obviously, God's taking the kingdom from your hands. My God, why aren't we connecting? What's happening to my kingdom? You promised this kingdom on oath to me. So meeting with God is a thing of the past. Used to be a thrill. We don't know how many days he's on the move like a refugee from his own um, son chasing him. He's left behind everything that would be an embodiment of the kingdom as king, right? He's left behind his possessions. He's left behind um, all the people who were following him, his subjects, and he's on the run. He's got covert um, guides or advisors giving him insights, but then he's not sure if they're turncoats and they're actually trying to double cross him. It's a good story if you don't know it. Second Samuel 15. Verse 7 of the message, chapter 42, says it this way. Chaos calls to the chaos. The tune of white water rapids. I don't know if you've ever tried surfing, but you get into deep waves, and then the waves handle you. And they not only push you off the board, you've got this 7 to 10 foot long weapon now that's trying to beat you over the head. The surfboard is attacking you. And then the weight of the wave, no matter how big it was, the bigger the worse, it pummels you under. And if you've ever fallen out of a kayak in white water or being taken over by a surfboard in, in that type of a situation, that sense of being you don't know which way's up, you don't know which way's down, there's bubbles and white and light and darkness, and like you're not dictating any of the moves. You're being handled by the tides or the currents. And I get a sense that's exactly what he's talking about in verse 7 of 42. He's just tossed into the rapids off a waterfall and he doesn't know which way is up. But he's choosing hope 
when emptiness and loss are characterizing his faith journey. So when he gets down in the dumps, as verse 6 says in the message, he says, I rehearse everything I know about you. And here we start relying on what's our history, what's our pedigree, what's the legacy we've been handed, what's God been doing in our life till now. He's got such a rich personal story of God delivering him, raising him up, bringing deliverance time and again against many different foes before he was king on oath and waiting for the throne. We know how God delivered him and raised him up and protected him and guided him time and again. So one of our greatest assets in these times of loss is remember the time when God and you get to fill in the blanks. And you know how you get those opportunities to rehearse? You meet with God. Because it's the daily when and where and why that fuels the journey and the testimony that enables you to be a person and for us to be a community that says, remember the time when? And we speak to that moment, that event, and go, yes, God delivers. Yes, he heals. I've been in white water before. I've been oppressed. I've been the underdog. I've been jeered at. And God continues to do what God does, what only he can do. He saves. He rescues. He heals. He delivers. He's a God of hope. So he moves from desire to despair, and he says, remember the time. His spirit has been guided by God all these years, speaking to his despondent soul and saying, you don't have to give up. It doesn't even have to be an option. You can choose hope in any circumstance. Let's just say that together. I can choose hope in any circumstance. You might need to tell yourself that a few times this week. You might need to write it down. I can choose hope in any circumstance. So in a time when the nations that surrounded Israel worshipped false gods, they would have a god of the sea. They would have a god of the sky. They'd have a god of the soil that would relate to harvests and cycles and seasons. And into this, the sons of Korah, writing Psalm 42, say in verse 8, this is the god of my what? Do you see it there? Verse 8, this is the god of my life. When he's the God of the sea, he might sound powerful, but boy, he sounds a long ways away from me if I'm inland in a desert where there's thirsty deer. But if he's the God of my life, this is a very different and much more personal and intimate God than perhaps most people presume God to be. He's the God of my life. We get this insider opportunity because of where we are in history to look back and know how David's story finishes as well. It wasn't many days after he was fueling himself with tears and crying this out that we find out that Absalom and his conspiring army were defeated. People who had yelled and jeered and thrown stones and called down curses at David said, whoa, I was really out of line. There was repentance. There was sorrow. There was a whole lot of please don't treat me the way I treated you (laughs) now that you're back installed in the kingdom. The hope was founded. And guys, it always is. The hope was founded. It was reliable to trust in God. It was a totally safe bet 
that hoping in God would turn out to be filled with reasonable hope. He'd actually be reliable. He'd be trustworthy. He'd be able to do everything that David had staked he'd be able to do. So let's just put a few takeaways together on choosing hope when emptiness and loss might be characterizing your journey. I was with a friend this morning and he told me how his wife tries to get their one child to read every day. And he said last night it was a bit of a, a, bit of a struggle to get her to sit down with a book. But once she'd calmed down from the activities of the day and she got into a comfy spot and she got her book open, he said, we just walked away and she just kept reading. Because once she was doing something and she was reminded, oh, this is enjoyable, I just needed someone to prompt me, and then I was off and running. And there's something I find about getting momentum started in all aspects and habits of life. It might be physical fitness. It might be telling your spouse or your partner you love them. It might be choosing to suppress emotions based on past hurts in how you respond to a person at work. But you start to shift the habit. And in this case, maybe it's meeting with God. Maybe it's reading his word. Someone, when we're children, sits us down and says, you got to do this, or we hope they're there in our lives. But guys, we get to sit ourselves down. We get to set aside this privilege and say, this is when I'm going to meet with God. This is where I'm going to meet with him. This is what I'm going to see happen in my life. And you know what? It doesn't matter how crazy your expectations for that are. They're completely realistic because you're meeting with God. So you can start putting into your journal and putting into your mind and, and anticipating what God's going to do in this time with you. I was asking the Lord this week, what, what do you want me to understand that I don't understand when I'm meeting with you? And I only got that far and I broke and I didn't even know where the emotion came from. And I realized that sometimes I'm seeking to do an action. I'm not seeking to meet my father. And he's like, I want you to show up as you. What's really happening in your life? And just with the, the word meet, M-W-E-T, he said, I want you to be able to take and bring me whatever your memories are, whatever's hurting, the losses, Maybe the remember when he did something great. Bring me your emotions. What a great way to meet with God and say, he asks what hurts and you like, you tell him. Bring me your energy. Like what if it was the best part of your day meeting with God? Not when you're so racked, you can barely keep your eyes open. You've turned off the TV and you're so done, but you'll just try like, Try showing up at a business meeting for that. Try having your neighbors over when you're in that condition. What if he got our best? Our memories, our emotions, our energy, and then our thoughts. We're told that we can take every thought and make it captive to him. That can be a beautiful part of meeting. Lord, what am I telling myself, listening or believing that doesn't agree with what you want to be telling me? What you want me to be believing? He will, I find, always answer that question for me because he wants me to be bathing in, my son would say marinating in, the truth. 
So when he has our memories and he has our emotions and he has my energy and he has my thoughts, it looks like I'm ready to meet. I'm showing up. That's how I would show up to meet with God. Now, it's really logical to say God's always available and he's always interested. But from a practical standpoint, I find that somewhere between shame and guilt, or I haven't been doing this very well, I'm a bad Christian. I hear this from people all the time. There's no place in the word of God where it says you're a bad Christian or a good Christian. If I'm named to be like Jesus, there's no bad version of that. And so we often sideline ourselves for meeting with God because we think we've somehow disqualified ourselves. Congratulations, that's how you qualify. We're going to come to communion and the whole qualification for entering into celebrating Jesus' death and experiencing the power and the wonder change in our lives of the resurrection is that we aren't good enough. We don't think we're good enough. We've long ago abandoned the notion that we're able to satisfy God, but Jesus could and he did and we accept him alone. And so that is the credential. That is the qualification. Yes, he's available. Yes, he's interested. No, I'm not qualified, but Jesus has made me so. And so I have this beautiful opportunity to come into his presence and meet all the time, anytime. Meeting with God's intentional. It's quite different than bumping into someone at the grocery store. And may our journey in the coming days be increasingly an awareness of that as we set our hearts, set our minds towards what Jesus is calling to all. Thank you for listening to the Lifetree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.